So welcome to the McFarlane's HR podcast. Uh, I'm Matthew Ramsey. I'm the senior knowledge lawyer in the employment team. And I'm joined this month by a colleague from our litigation and dispute resolution practice, Laura Bridgewater. Laura's practice spans, as you might imagine, the whole of litigation, but with a particular focus on investigations and on financial services in particular. And Laura, I think I'm remembering correctly that you've actually been on secondment to the FCA. Hi, Matthew. Yes, that's right. I was on secondment to the FCA back in 2016, which was a very interesting experience to be on the other side for once. And one that I think, you know, has been very useful in my career since then. And it's particularly useful for today because we're talking about the FCA and their approach to enforcement of what they now call non-financial misconduct or NFM for short. Let's just set the scene a little bit. What is non-financial misconduct and why does it matter? Thanks, Matthew. NFM, as it's referred to, is all about what employees and um, individuals who are authorised by the FCA, either as senior managers or certified persons, do sort of either outside of the office in their personal lives or inside of the workplace, but um, outside of their sort of formal role. So the way that, you know, for example, how they interact with others, and it includes bullying, harassment, discrimination. And this topic is all about what might be referred to, I guess, as the expanding perimeter of of regulation into areas that wouldn't historically perhaps be regarded as matters for the FCA or indeed the PRA to be concerned with. And this all stems from the Me Too movement um, in the the film industry and generally heightening social expectations around conduct and particularly diversity and inclusion. So I think that's the the context. But it's fair to say that this isn't new in the sense of there's been some quite big developments, which I'm sure we'll talk about in recent months. But this is something that the FCA has been talking about for a number of years. It's right, isn't it, that the FCA isn't unique amongst regulators in focusing on misconduct generally. So we've seen the SRA for lawyers, for solicitors, taking a much more active interventionist stance. And so that's presumably why why it's relevant Although we're talking targeting this podcast at financial services, it's of general relevance for, for clients across all sectors because where the FCA leads, other regulators will not doubt as follow. I, I absolutely agree. And um, the, the SRA body of case law is very interesting, actually, because it's that case law that has um, somewhat led the upper tribunal's approach when um, challenging um, the FCA on some of its initial uh, enforcement actions on non-financial misconduct. And I think it's interesting to draw analogies between the approach the FCA is now taking and the approach that other regulators have taken to date. So I think specifically, the SRA um, in its body of case law has drawn a distinction between someone's personal integrity and their professional integrity. So when it's assessed cases, it's looked at whether an issue with respect to their personal integrity could be said to touch on their ability to perform their role in the workplace. And there was a decision called Frensham in, in 2021, where the upper tribunal looked at an individual's attempt to challenge um, the FCA's decision to prohibit him from working in financial services on the back of um, some criminal convictions for um, sexual um, harassment, I think it involved children. And the uh, the tribunal's approach there was to sort of uphold the body of thinking from the SRA cases that actually Um, Yes, this is clearly very serious conduct, but the FCA hadn't sort of drawn enough of a link between his misconduct 
outside of the office and his professional role. Having said that, the tribunal did uphold the FCA's decision on the basis that there were other sort of aggravating factors. So the fact that Frenchman hadn't been open and cooperative with the FCA and also the fact that he breached his bail conditions. So ultimately, the FCA was right to prohibit him from working in financial services, albeit that they hadn't drawn this sort of close enough link, um, according to the upper tribunal's um, decision. Um, But fast forward to now, um, and this is probably a neat segue on to where the FCA has now got to with NFM, because it's just published a consultation paper in the autumn of last year about its um, proposals to better integrate NFM considerations into regulation. And one of the key things coming out of that, um, that consultation paper is the FCA very clearly saying what someone does in their personal life is relevant to the integrity when we look at whether they're fit and proper to perform a regulated function. And you can see that very obviously in some fields. So if somebody's convicted of theft, for instance, and they have charge of client monies, you can see that that outside work act clearly has a relevance for inside work fitness and propriety it's it's much more difficult as a sort of a a lay outsider to to see a link between you know being a little bit over friendly in the pub to somebody uh, somebody you're attracted to and necessarily reading that into being barred from your chosen career for 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 eternity How, how does the fca get comfortable with this relationship very um a very very tricky area and one that i think is going to be very difficult for firms to operate in practice the fca um is is very keen in its um consultation paper to point out that this only applies to serious misconduct what does serious mean well that's the question isn't it and there isn't a definition of what constitutes serious misconduct it does seem to be something that would need full to be considered on a case by case basis and as you say there's clearly a spectrum there are um there is criminal convictions are clearly going to be serious misconduct but then there's the scenario that you've just given Matthew at potentially the other end of the spectrum and quite how firms um, make decisions on that I think is going to be very challenging now what the FCA is proposing to do in its consultation paper is um in respect of all firms authorized by the FCA there is um, going to be a proposed change to the sort of fitness and propriety, a propriety assessment that a firm conducts um, when it considers whether or not someone um, is fit to be a certified person and or to hold a senior management function. And that's going to be amended so it has a specific reference to non-financial misconduct and considering a person's integrity. There's also going to be changes to the FCA conduct rules, which are the rules that apply to um, certified persons and senior managers. And also when looking at the firm level to when a firm assesses whether or not a firm's fit to be authorised, looking at their suitability as what we call the suitability threshold condition, whether or not a firm has in place suitable DNI type policies and looking at it from that angle as a sort of systems and controls perspective. So the FCA has got some quite specific changes that it wants to bring in to kind of bring NFM more squarely into the regulatory framework. But I don't think it's going to answer any of these tricky questions about, in practice, how the firms apply any of this. And the onus really is on the firm, isn't it? Because it's, it's it used to be the case many years ago that it was the FCA who had to go and undergo that approval process. And now it's really delegated that to each individual firm. So it falls to compliance and HR functions and line managers to make that initial assessment of whether somebody's fitness and propriety is called into question by whatever they happen to have done or alleged to have done outside work. Absolutely. There's a number of layers to this, I think. There's the initial assessment of fitness and propriety. So have the firms properly considered, you know, an individual's background um, and, you know, should they have picked up on something sooner? Then there's the, okay, 
an incident happens, does does the firm get alerted to that? Whether it's something that has occurred in the workplace or in a work social setting or indeed in the person's personal life, how does that information actually get escalated to the firm? Because if they're not aware of information, they can't do anything about it. And then the third point is, well, when that information, if it does get escalated, how does the firm then deal with that? You know, what does it, what it it processes internally, does it invoke, you know, and how, and how does it make an assessment? And that brings us neatly on to the notice to provide information that the FCA published at the beginning of this month to some, some elements of the financial services um, industry requiring firms to give the FCA exactly that kind of data, what, what they asked for. In, so very recently, um, just earlier this month, the FCA wrote to UK insurers asking them to provide information about incidents of NFM that they have been alerted to. And that this includes information about the volume and types of NFM incidents. Query what is meant by type there. That's not much detail given. Methods of detection actions taken to address the incidences and the FCA has asked for a breakdown between senior management function and non-senior management function incidences. And um, it's um, been confirmed that um, while the the first letter has just gone out to UK insurers, there's going to be a follow-on letter sent out to wholesale banks. This is potentially going to be quite a big undertaking for firms to respond to this survey. The FCA actually notes in its letters that some HR departments will need to conduct manual reviews if they don't actually hold this data in an accessible format or in the right format or broken down by the right categories such that they can just press a button and you know have the information at their fingertips. It raises interesting data protection questions as well, doesn't it, for compliance and HR functions. You know, wh- what data do they maintain? Can they anonymize it? If they anonymize it completely, how does that enable them to track serial offenders adequately? It's it's quite challenging. The FCA is alive to that issue and has stated in its letter that it doesn't want to receive personal data. And that, um, you know, it it doesn't want specific details of cases, it it wants the high level statistics. But I think it's one thing saying that, and it's another thing collating that information and, of course, conducting a verification exercise to make sure that the data that's being collected sort of accurately reflects the underlying facts, but that the underlying facts have been stripped out. So I think, and, and of course, there might be some cases which are cross potentially cross the line into NFM. There might be, for example, a whistleblowing complaint about an employee which might have some aspects which touch on, you know, potential bullying claims, but among lots of others, and you know, query how um, much credence and reliance is placed on certain allegations that might be made by a whistleblower. Or that's that that's not something though that the FCA expects firms to take into account. But I think there's a whole host of complicated questions that firms are going to have to grapple with to get this data. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, it's it's very hard to to think of good reasons for the FCA not to be aggressive in their regulatory function. Clearly, we don't want to have sexism and racism and transphobia endemic across any sector, let alone financial services, which is where all our pensions get managed and so on. Um, uh, but but it's it's one one thing to say that, and another thing to either to get a, a genuinely fair financial services space or really to, to know quite how how best to to grapple with these sort of ingrained problems and i suppose it's it's it must be open to question whether these regulatory steps are actually making a difference on the ground for women for people from different backgrounds mm-hmm. 
it's it, I think it's a very difficult position for the FCA and it has been criticised. Um, it's received feedback from firms that it's gone too far in its current proposals. Um, I should say there's some additional proposals which will apply only to large firms which have more than 250 employees and that that requires sort of um, provision of data to the FCA on an annual basis, um, them to have specific DNI policies in place and targets. And, and, you know, some people are saying all of this goes a little bit too far. But then, as you say, um, clearly, it's the FCA that has to lead by example and lead the charge in the financial services sector. And the rea- I mean, when you look, for example, at the recent um, allegations against Crispin Odie, for example, I think that, you know, these th- these sorts of issues are only being more and more um, in the public domain. You know, it's it's you can't escape it. And so I think the political and the social pressure on the FCA, um, you know, is 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 very intense. Yeah. From an employment perspective, I mean, we, we have definitely seen firms in this space, in fact, firms across all sectors, radically changing their their historic approach to allegations of sexual misconduct, particularly in the past. I don't think it's it will come as a shock to anyone to to hear that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was very common to quietly get rid of the complainants, normally a junior female, and to protect the high-earning senior male, uh, despite whatever allegations had been made against them. Uh, and that very much has changed. You can, you know, I think all, all firms across all sectors are recognising that you can no longer sweep these things under the carpet and have to take disciplinary action where that's warranted. And I think there's a real a PR risk to firms if they don't do that. Um, what we might see is um, an increased um, number of employment tribunal claims, for example, um, uh, brought by senior managers, you know, for the back of being treated unfairly. So we might see a rise in those sorts of complaints. But ultimately, I think from a firm perspective, it's about balancing the regulatory risk against the employment risks. And, um, you know, and, and more often than not, it's going to be the regulatory risks that prevail. If firms don't take um, on board to clear guidance the FCA's issue to date and indeed implement the new rules once, once they come into force, and there's a risk that firms could be exposed to potential systems and controls enforcement action from the FCA. So this isn't just about the FCA's powers to bring enforcement action against the relevant individuals. It's about firms also having adequate systems and controls to, to police this. We, we, for example, saw the FCA open an investigation into OD asset management off the back of the Crispin OD allegations. It has subsequently confirmed that that investigation has been closed, but it nevertheless highlights that the FCA will consider this to be as much as a firm issue as it is an individual issue. So that puts the emphasis on HR, compliance, internal legal, really to have a comprehensive review of, of their systems and controls and make sure that all their processes are adequate and reflect current best practice. Exactly. And I think there is an issue around sort of benchmarking. You know, as with all new regulation, it's difficult for sometimes firms to gauge quite what is expected. And I think part of the reason the FCA is writing at the moment to banks and insurers to request this this data is to sort of get a better sense of the benchmark, you know, what, what are firms doing and what, what are the kind of numbers in terms of incidents that they're dealing with. And on that front, they said that actually a firm that has a higher number of NFM incidences is not necessarily a sort of negative. It might actually suggest they have a culture at which people feel they can speak up. Conversely, a firm which has a very low number of complaints and cases that it's dealing with, perhaps that 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 means that it's neither because they're squeaky clean or no or everyone's terrified. <laughs> well, exactly, and no one's you know no firm is squeaky clean. I think it's the reality of human nature, isn't it? So the SCA does expect firms to be dealing with these types of issues proactively. 
the other uh, we're probably coming towards the end of our time uh, i just wanted to explore with you the consequences for an individual of having these very serious allegations made against them and what uh, what you thought the procedural safeguards that a firm ought to put in place in dealing with them or, or should should be there was a lot of litigation some years ago um where professionals across all sectors including you know, people who were regulated by the General Medical Council, people regulated by and financial services, solicitors, looked to have lawyers involved at all stages of internal disciplinary processes because they said, you know, the, the threat to my reputation and my whole future career is so great that I need that additional layer of protection. Employment pr practitioners loathe the idea of over-formal internal processes. Where, where do you stand on, on that? I think it's um, a case by case basis judgment call, to be honest with you, and which would very much depend on the seniority of the person involved, the seriousness of the allegations, the extent to which the firm, um, you know, feels that it could have um, further ramifications in terms of, you know, notifying the FCA, for example, because the firm has its own obligations to notify the FCA of these matters. Um, and, you know, whether it has concerns about providing a regulatory reference, there's a lot of different things to consider. Um, and um, I don't think you'd necessarily want to have a, a rule in place that someone's entitled to paid for legal representation every time there's an NFM incident. And in particular, you know, do you want to be funding someone's legal representation if there's a concern that actually they've behaved quite, uh, you know, appallingly? So there's a lot of different questions there, and it's 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 not straightforward for firms. But I think one of the biggest sort of procedural safeguards that you can have in place is to just to make sure that you are complying with, you know, it sounds obvious, but complying with the firm's internal policies, treating the matter with sufficient seriousness from the outset. So having the right governance in place over the internal investigation and disciplinary, making sure that things are properly audited, thinking about privilege, um, making sure that, you know, to the extent that there's difficult conversations internally at the firm that need to happen, that they're happy, you're involving your in-house lawyers and having those discussions on a privileged basis. So I think setting up the investigation correctly from the outset can save lots of complications further down the line. I mean, that's uh, that, as I said right at the start, your practice is very heavily tilted towards investigation. So if listeners have any questions on that or any other matter, I'm sure you'll be pleased to talk to them about either setting up the investigation or even conducting investigations for them. Thank you very much, Laura. Um, both Laura and my contact details are in the episode description um, as as usual. And it just re remains for me to say a big thank you to Laura for explaining this pretty knotty little area to us. Thanks also to, I never remember to say this, but thanks also to Diana and Verity for sitting behind, behind the scenes and making this podcast sound better than it would otherwise do. Tune in again next month for something else interesting. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>